Those are good uh, lyrics for a day like today as well. I don't know if you're in a season where you kind of wonder how many things can go a little left or a little right or a little wrong, but it seems like we know a lot of families that are dealing with all manner of either hurt or pain or difficulty. And in those seasons, certainly remembering you know, Darla and her family and the Browns and uh, the difficulties that they're experiencing with Stan's death, um, many conversations that we've had of numerous things that at some point you just stop and you think, you know, Lord, is it enough yet? Are you done? Are we still going to go down this road? And whether you're in a season like that or uh, one is maybe around the corner or um, maybe you're in a season of great gratitude and thankfulness because of God's provision and in thousands of ways, uh, God's presence needs to be felt. It needs to be real, whatever road that you happen to be on. And, and this is our hope over the next several weeks as we as a church body prepare to celebrate uh, Good Friday and, of course, Easter Sunday, this moment in the church calendar where we find ourselves between Ash Wednesday, season of Lent, and celebrating the, the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. I believe that God pays attention to the calendar, not because of dates and times, but because we move through seasons in different ways. And I believe that we can be more spiritually sensitive during times like this when we're maybe paying attention, a little more in tune to what God is up to. And this is the hope through this series. We'll be walking through the the last part of the Gospel of Luke, not verse by verse. Maybe you'll get a chance to read it. We'll read a verse out of Luke chapter 9, and it kind of begins this last little section of Jesus' life, and it will frame sort of this, this picture of the road that Jesus is walking, and, and how Luke describes it is powerful and it's unique. Before we get to that, let's frame it this way, and I want you to be thinking about this question because I'm going to ask you to respond to me out loud. Here's the question I'd like for you to think about as we jump in. What's the best road trip that you've ever taken? You can think about the road trips you've been on, and you know exactly what I mean when I say road trip, right? I mean, you had a bag of snacks. Somebody had a paper map. Who still likes to use a paper map, right? Donna loves a paper map because without a paper map, you don't know what's around you, right? I mean, your GPS, it'll get you there, maybe, you know. I mean, we've all had a GPS mishap, but a paper map tells you what's near, and it seems that when you're on a road trip, you really need to know what's nearby. And, and so you got in the car, and you knew we're going to a place. So what, what, what was it for you? What's that, when you think back, were, were you a kid? You remember riding in the way back seat or... You remember your dad? I, my dad used to play this little game with me. We would ride to my grandparents. And I would sit in the, in the seat behind him. And, of course, this was before we needed seat belts because life was expendable then. And so <laughs> this was when, this is a while ago, this is when the, the, the little switch to turn on the, the brights was down on the floor. Maybe you remember this. Anybody remember that? Okay, just the old people, right? And so uh, we would be driving down the highway at night out of eastern Kentucky from my grandparents' house. And these were the road trips we would take. And a car would come over the horizon on the highway, and Dad told me that there was a little mouse that lived in the dashboard. And he was scared of cars. And when the cars would come by, his little I'm home light would go off. 
And it never, never dawned on me that dad was operating this switch with his foot, of course. And we would down the highway and over the hill would come a car and the little mouse would go away. And it was magical to me. These were the things I remember about our road trips. So what do you remember about your road trip? What was the best road trip that you have ever taken? About two years ago, Donna and I, we took a road trip. We were in a season of life where we just weren't sure what was next and really needed some, well, when you really need to think, there's just nothing like windshield time, right? Some time where you can just look at the road ahead of you and think about your life and think about where you're going. And so we took a road trip. Our, our ultimate destination when we left the, the Denver area here and got in the car and drove down the road, our ultimate destination was San Diego. It was a big road trip. We had several destinations along the way. And we went down some back roads and went to Pagosa Springs. We'd never been there before. Went to the Grand Canyon. We, we went through some of the it was Antelope Canyon. It was just amazing and beautiful. It took us two weeks to take this trip. And we even came back a different way. We did no backtracking. It was amazing, life-changing, transformative, renewal, refreshing. It's the best road trip I've ever been on. So what about you? Where'd you go? What was the best road trip you've ever been on? We got some interesting first service answers, but you always prove to be the more interesting crowd. So let's see. <laughs> let, let, me, let me hear from you. Best road trip. Shout it out. So Larry, Larry needed to clarify the reason why he went to Michigan, right? Because who would go to Michigan unless it was to see the beautiful leaves of the deciduous trees, right? Unless you lived there. Unless you lived there, right? Bummer for you then, right? <laughs> because we all know. How many of you are natives to Colorado? Let me see your hands. You're natives. And so you love to tell people that you're a native, right? You love to have this pride because geography matters, doesn't it? Where you're from matters. This is why when one of the 2B disciples heard that Jesus was from Nazareth, he said, can anything good come out of Nazareth, right? And thankfully, nobody says that about any place in Colorado. They occasionally say it about Michigan, right? <laughs> Where else? Where else did you go? My goodness. Oh, beautiful. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. It is a beautiful area. Very good. Sometimes the company can make a trip really a regrettable experience. <laughs> oh, beautiful, beautiful, right? Desert, amazing formations. Yes. Wow, that's a unique car that can get all the way to Belize. That's good. Yeah, yeah, right on. What, that's incredible. All the way through. Now, you remember the trip that you were on, and you remember the people that you were with. You might even remember the car that you were riding in and all of the experience that you had. And so the question that you ought to ask as you kind of ponder this and as we get ready to launch into some thoughts scripturally about where this series is, is going, it feels like the, the journeys that we're on and the destinations that we go to are really about those two different things, about journeys and destinations. So just go with your gut. I'm a show of hands. I want you to answer this question quickly and instinctively, okay? Which is more important when you're on a trip like that? Is it the journey or is it the destination? Which is it for you, journey or destination? How many of you would say it's all about the destination? Let me see your hands. How many of you would say it's all about the journey? How many of you raised your hand differently than your spouse. Yeah, yeah, usually that's the case. 
This is why God put you together, right? Now you're going to have a chat over lunch, and it's going to be great fun, right? And so it could be one, it could be the other. I bet for some of you in the room, it changed somewhere along in your life. If you believe it's about the journey now, maybe you used to think it was about the destination or vice versa, because your values change, your priorities change, your perspectives change. And whether you think it's one or the other, I get it. I totally understand why you think that. I mean, come on, of course it's about the destination, isn't it? I mean, who gets in the car? I mean, apart from, you know, going to dinner. I mean, who loads a suitcase into the car? Who puts all their stuff in the car and somebody says, where are we going? And the answer is, I don't know. That doesn't happen. You got to have a destination. I mean, you got to know whether you're getting on 25 North or South, don't you? You got to know where you're heading on 70 or guiding country roads all the way. You have to have a destination so that you understand how many snacks to pack, of course. And this destination idea, of course, maybe it's out in the distance as far away as San Diego or Maine or Michigan, but there is a destination in mind. Of course, it's about the destination. But maybe you've come to the conclusion over time that for you, it's about the journey. If that's true, then you know what they say, that getting there is half the what? Who would want to miss half the fun? Of of course it's about the journey, especially if you're going to road trip. The things that you'll see, I mean, how often can you pass the largest ball of twine in Kansas without stopping? Of course you want to see all of these things and the incredible landscape that's in front of you, and you remember road trips because of the journey. You remember stopping and getting out of the car and thinking, oh my goodness, the temperature's changed. We're headed north. We're headed higher. We're this experience. You remember the smells that you experience. Oh, we're in the middle of Kansas. We're near Greeley. I can smell it, right? You know these things because of the, the journey. This is how God orchestrates the events, his relationship with you, how you experience him, it's always about the journey and the destination. Because when you think back, the best trips you've ever been on, they've always been about both, always. The problem today is that we don't value the journey. Often it's just about the destination. And I think it's because of the way we travel these days. Don and I spent a little time in, in North Carolina over the last week, and we got to rest and, and to rejuvenate, recover a little bit more, and enjoy the, the sights and the sounds of the oceans. Beautiful. If you've not seen that part of the country, the, the dunes and the grass and the coast is just beautiful. And it's incredible. While we're there, we're not that far from a place called Kitty Hawk that is, of course, deeply embedded in our travel history, this place where these two bicyclists, these two men, Wilbur, Wilbur, Wilbur and Orville Wright, experienced the, the miracle of flight for the first time. They're near Kitty Hawk, Kill Devil Hills is what it's called, and 1903 is when they took to the air a few short flights. It's amazing, and while we're there, I was reminded that the way we got to North Carolina would have just made the Wright brothers sick to their stomach. I mean, we were shoved into a tiny tube, right? We, I got on row 86, I think it was, of the airplane, and right in front of me was a gentleman who came down the aisle, and I saw him. And you see people coming, and you hope that they're not anywhere near you. 
but he was right in front of me. I had to be 6'13 or something like that, tall. And he was as wide as he, I mean, you know, he's, he's just a doorframe of a fella. And he sits down in the seat in front of me. And before we even reach altitude, his seat comes back and it's right here in front of me. And I thought this was bad etiquette now. Isn't it bad etiquette to even lean your seat back? But of course, it stayed there inches from my nose for four hours. And I thought, oh, this would just make the Wright brothers sick to their stomach. I mean, when they took to flight, they, they had the sand near them. They felt the wind off the ocean, they, they just blowing through their hair, one of them on the ground cheering his brother on. I mean, this was not what they envisioned. It's a journey that you want to forget, right? Some of you are on a journey right now that you would like to forget. But yet God is directing and guiding and leading you. From the very beginning of time, from the beginning of God's story, from Genesis to Revelation to modern day to our time right now, to your story right now, God tells his story of our relationship with him. He wants us to walk with him every day. He wants us to experience his goodness, his mercy, and his love. And he wants us, as we walk with him, to know him deeply and intimately. And as he tells the story of knowing him, he tells it through journeys and destinations. And he tells the story through geography, the same way you tell your story through geography. When Don and I tell the story of our life, it is broken into segments of when we lived in Pennsylvania and when we lived in Indiana and what time of our lives we moved to Colorado and what houses we lived in. It's all about geography. Natives of Colorado, it's about geography. Those of you who got here as soon as you could, it's about geography because God tells his story through the sacred places where we find ourselves living. And he has done that from the very beginning of time. From the moments that Eden was created all the way to Abraham. God calls Abraham, and when he calls Abraham, he's actually called a different name, Abram for short. It gets changed later. When he calls Abram, Abraham, he says this, The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country. It's all about place and journeys and destinations. And when God tells the story of his people, knowing him, including your story, geography is at the center of it, almost always. I'm sure when Abram is there and God comes to him to establish the intimacy of the relationship, and he says to Abram, go from your country, I'm sure Abraham thought one very simple thing. I don't want to go. I like it here. It's good here. I know where the well is, I know my neighbors, I know where the rise is, I know how the weather comes in, I know how to expect life to unfold, I'm comfortable here, I like it here. But God says, for some reason, whenever He moves, whenever He leads, whenever He calls us to a different thing in our walk with Him, it almost always involves a journey and a destination. Point A, where you are today, what you believe and what you think today who you're with today, where you live today, and point B, where he's calling you to. And there's a journey in between. And some of you are on a journey right now. God is calling you and leading you and bringing you to a different place. And you think the same thing Abraham thought. I like it here. I don't want to go. I don't want this. I don't want that. I don't want new people, new job, new experiences, new home. I want what I know. And yet God pulls us into places that are uncomfortable, spaces that we would rather not be so that he can form us into his companions 
those that will walk with him, that we would lean on him and depend on him. And so God calls Abraham. He says, go from your country, your people and your father's household. Leave what you know and go to something that's foreign to you that you don't know. Go to the land that I will show you. This is what he's calling. And then still, in Genesis chapter 12, all of these statements and these that you'll see next, look at the importance of the geography and the journey and the destination from the very beginning of God's story. So Abraham did what? He went. That's right, God called him. So he left home and he went to this new place. So the Lord had told him, and they set out for the land of Canaan, this new place, geography. Abraham traveled, it's about the journey through the land, and the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your offspring, I will give this land. Abraham wasn't all at Canaan, he was almost to Canaan, the promised land flowing with milk and honey, you've all heard it described. And while he's there and he can see it from a distance, God points it out to him and says, this will be the land of your people. And of course, he's describing this incredible valley near Jerusalem and the beauty of God's promised land that at the time probably did not look very beautiful. Probably looked much like a barren desert, brown and dusty, similar to the way parts of it look today. And as he looked at it and he believed that God was in relationship with him, that he was on a journey and he was now seeing the destination, he built an altar and he worshiped God. This is what happens when God calls us to go from point A to point B. When he moves you from this family to that family. When he says, it's time for you to leave that job and go to another one. When he says, it's time to leave behind some of your childish ways and pick up new habits that will serve you well as you love others intimately and thoughtfully. When God does that, we're in intimate relationship with him and we worship. And we believe that he's guiding us and leading us. It's exactly what happened to Abraham. And it's what happens to me and you. It's all about the journey and the destination and geography. This isn't just true in the Old Testament. In fact, by the time Jesus gets on the scene, the themes of journey and destination and really the importance of geography can be seen on almost every page of Scripture if you open it and read it with that lens. And so, about the time that Jesus is to be born, well, when Luke begins to tell the story, he says this, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, wife of Zechariah, mom to John the Baptist, cousin to Mary, God sent an angel Gabriel to Nazareth. Why would God send an angel to Nazareth, a small town in Galilee? Who lived in Nazareth? Mary did. Who else lived in Nazareth? Joseph did. That's right. And so the angel comes and tells Mary she's with child. And immediately, immediately in the womb, before Jesus is even born, his life involves a journey and a destination and geography. So Mary immediately leaves Nazareth and goes all the way down to Judea to spend time with her cousin Elizabeth. And then again, before Jesus is born, they leave their hometown of Nazareth and travel for a census to Bethlehem, where Jesus is born. And then travel gets even more involved, international travel for Jesus. Even as a young baby, they travel to the incredible land of, well, where did they run to? That's right, Egypt. It's all about a journey. And it's all about a destination. In fact, this is so deeply embedded in Scripture and in God's story, and in your story, I bet, that you'll notice that the only childhood story we have of Jesus involves travel, right? You know what happened when Jesus was about 12 years old? Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. 
Now, they lived about 60, 70 miles to the north of Jerusalem. So a travel meant that they were walking and going as a caravan, probably with other devoted Jews that lived near his hometown, and they would travel for at least five days just to get to Jerusalem for the feast, for the festival. And then they would travel another five days back, probably stayed a week or maybe two weeks in Jerusalem. In fact, probably being devout Jews, it wasn't the only feast that they went to in Jerusalem. And so if you add all of that up, Jesus probably spent at least a fourth of his life growing up traveling to and from and staying in Jerusalem, even though they lived five days travel away by foot. This is who he was. It's all about location, sacred place, and where he was traveling. In fact, because his parents were still traveling, well, that's when they lost him, right? Thinking he was in their company that traveled on for a day. It would have been 10, 12 miles. And some of you have done the very same thing over the last few weeks or few months of your life. You've left Jesus behind. You thought he was in your company, but you've sort of quit paying attention. I mean, let's be real, right? We're busy people. We have many things to get done. And we, just like Jesus, find ourselves traveling from place to place, destination A to destination B. It's all about the journey. It's all about geography. And we find ourselves waking up one day and realizing that we have made ourselves distant from an intimate relational God who wants to walk with us every day. So the question that you ought to wrestle with as you read these ideas in Scripture, is that happening right now? Have you shoved God aside? Have you put some distance between Him and you? Maybe you're busy. Maybe you just want something different than what He wants. Maybe just like Abraham, God is calling you to something new and you've said, no, you don't want anything to do with that new thing. That you like it where you are. And so if that's the case, God is beckoning you back to walk with Him side by side. And this doesn't just happen when Jesus is young and as an infant or as a 12-year-old. It happens all throughout his ministry. When Luke begins to record his ministry, he kind of picks up the ministry of Jesus right after his baptism, right after John baptized him in the Jordan. When that happens, Luke 4 opens up just like this. Jesus left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit, where? Say it with me, into the wilderness. Jesus is always traveling. There's always a journey, and there's always a destination. And all through Luke chapter 4, there are these mentions of geography, all of the journeys and the destinations. Jesus returned to Galilee. He went to Nazareth. Then he went to Capernaum, and he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Now, in the Bible, the four books that we call Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the story of Jesus' life all the way from long before he was born genealogies, all the way to his resurrection and ascension to heaven. All four stories tell the story of his life, and they're told within the geography parameters of about 90 miles north to south and about 30 miles east to west. Sounds like a small world, doesn't it? But not if you're going to walk. Jesus couldn't hop in his Honda and go wherever he wanted. If he wanted to go all the way from the Sea of Galilee to the north, down to Jerusalem to the south, then it meant he strapped on his sandals and walked for five or six days. Longer if it was a leisurely pace or if he had stops along the way. 30 miles east to west. And all of these geographical locations contain the stories that you know about Jesus in Scripture. Places like Bethany where Martha and Mary lived, where Lazarus had his home. 
Of course, Jerusalem, the holy city. To the north, the, the region of Galilee, and the Sea of Galilee. You know stories from that region. And right in the middle, Samaria, where the Samaritans would have lived, these outcasts, those who were kept, just cast aside by society. This is the geography that Jesus lived within. And when the Gospels unfold, it's very clear that God is still telling his story through journeys and destinations, the same way he's telling your story, whatever journey you're on, whatever destination you're headed to. And so after all this traveling, Luke 4, well, when Luke 5 opens up, the gospel writer says this, one day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, which is a name you probably aren't familiar with, but we know it as the Sea of Galilee, all the way to the north, the Galilean region. Jesus was there, and there were some fishermen nearby, and you even know their names. Simon Peter, what was his brother's name? Anybody remember? Andrew. Two other brothers, the sons of thunder, we call them James and John. They were fishing, and Jesus is there, and some incredible things happen. The Gospels tell the story of Jesus calling his first disciples to him. And when Jesus does this, he invites them on a journey. And when he invites them on a journey, the destination is unknown, but the journey is clear. And what Jesus says, all I want you to do is come and follow me. They weren't invited to join a church. They weren't invited to align their lives with a philosophy or an idea. They were invited to be in a relationship with a person and follow him every day. It's the same invitation that Jesus gives to you. And so that's what the disciples did. That geography, 90 by 30 miles, Jesus crisscrossed it over and over and over again all throughout the Gospels. And every time he did, the disciples were right behind him, and they watched him as he raised Lazarus from the dead. They watched him as he spread mud on a man's eyes and helped him see again. They watched as he fed multitudes of people, not just once, but at least two times. They watched as he turned over the tables in the temple. They were with him every step of the way. Now, occasionally, Jesus would sneak away by himself to pray and, and really you know, spend time with his father. But almost all the time, they were there eating and drinking and walking and living and they were intimately connected to each other in a relationship, walking together all the time. Because wherever he went, he had sandals on his feet. He was walking down dusty roads. This is why in the Mishnah, it's an old Jewish document that is the Jewish oral tradition, began to be committed to papyrus back around the time of Jesus, the Mishnah. The Mishnah says this about rabbis and their followers. It uses this phrase, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. It's a great phrase. Say it with me. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. Now you say this like you're saying to someone else, that it would be an incredible blessing that they would receive for the most amazing journey they go on in their life. So say it with a little bit of energy with me. Ready? May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. And it's this picture of Peter and James and John following Jesus down a road. And they don't know where they're going, but they know they're going to the right place. How do they know they're going to the right place? Because Jesus is leading. And as Jesus leads, they're so closely behind Jesus, not just physically, but emotionally and spiritually, that as he walks with his sandals strapped to the soles of his feet, and the dust kicks up from the dusty Galilean roads that the dust now falls on his disciples. 
and they relish this dirt. They like the dirt because they are covered in the dust of the rabbi. That's how close they are to Jesus. This is how you and I are to walk with Jesus. That when we read his words, we change our views. That's how close we are to him. That when Jesus talks about loving our enemies, we don't write it off as hyperbole or some goal that's too grand for a mere human to meet. We identify people that we would rather see fail, and then we do what we can to show them love and mercy and kindness. We're covered in the dust of our rabbi. That when Jesus talks about what it means to love, we find places in our hearts where hatred or bitterness or judgment reigns, and we slowly dismantle them and move them out of the way so that we can be covered in the dust of our rabbi. This is what the disciples did for three years, covered in his dust, walking with him from place to place. They were on a journey. They weren't sure where the destination was, but all they knew is if Jesus is going, that's where I want to go. Is that how you feel? If that's where he's going, that's where you want to go? If that's what he says, that's how you want to live? If that's what he calls you to, that's what you want to give up? This is how they felt, and they followed him in that way. Now, when we get to this unique verse in Luke chapter 9, it gives us a picture as Luke, historian and physician, he begins to record this journey that Jesus is on, and the journey of Jesus is about to make a turn. When Luke writes this next verse that I'll share with you, Jesus is in the most northern region that I've described to you uh, that encompasses Galilee and Samaria and the Holy Land. He's up north by the Sea of Galilee. And as he is up north, he's about to make a turn in his journey. Now remember, these 90 by 30 miles, he has crisscrossed them all throughout the three years of his ministry. He's made his way down to the feast, and then he's worked his way out. But for a while now, when we get to Luke chapter 9, Jesus is kept away from the center of the Holy Land, because he knows that if he moves toward the Holy Land, it will inflame the religious leaders. This is why Jesus, early in his ministry, would heal people and say, now don't tell anybody I did this. You've seen that before in Scripture. It's because he wanted, he knew that, that once his ministry kind of gathered ahead of steam, there was no stopping it, that it would eventually result in an incredible clash between him and the religious authorities that would result in his death. And so he wanted to stave that off as long as he could. But now that's no longer the goal. And so Luke says this about Jesus and his journey. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. At this point in time, the gospel of Luke, the journey of Jesus, takes a different turn. Jesus knows what is going to happen next. Now, Luke 9, all the way to Luke 23, will tell the story of Jesus in his journey from the northern part of the region all the way to Jerusalem. He doesn't take the most direct route. He wants to, but he doesn't. And we'll hear about all this journey in pieces over the next few weeks as we get ready for Good Friday and Easter. And if you want to take that journey, then you could start at any place in these Gospels. Luke 9 is a great place to start and begin reading a bit by bit about Jesus and his journey over the last several weeks of his life. Who does he teach? What does he say? What stories does he tell? He's about to wrap it up. 
What would you say if you knew you had five minutes left? What would you? Who would you? Where would you? And Jesus does all of it. And it starts with that verse. I kind of enjoy the the NIV. It says this. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus, say the word with me, resolutely set out to Jerusalem. And so Jesus, in this moment, the, the, the word there is turns his face, or the Old Testament would translate it this way, set his face like a flint and pointed it toward Jerusalem. And when Jesus does this, he knows. I'm not just going to a holy city. I'm not just going to the place where these festivals are celebrated. I'm not just going to the center of Judea. I'm going to a place that will eventually and imminently bring my death. For Jesus, to turn his face toward Jerusalem means I am facing my crucifixion fully and completely. And I go there fully knowing that every step will bring me closer to this conflict with religious authority that will bring about my death. Remember what he said to the disciples when they began. Come and follow me. So can you go? Disciples have to ask this question. They know it's heating up. They know that the conflict is about to boil over. Can you go? Thomas? Peter? John? Bartholomew? Judas? Can you go? And so as we walk this journey over the next five or six weeks, the question that you ought to wrestle with, we've hinted at it from the beginning, best road trip you've taken, the idea that you maybe have left Jesus behind in your own journey, the question that you ought to ask is this one over the next few weeks preparing for Easter. Where are you going? Where are you headed? What are you moving toward? Are you walking with Jesus? Do his words inform your heart and your mind and your practice and your desire to be more like him? Where, where are you headed? Are you moving away from anxiety toward trust? Are you moving away from bitterness to forgiveness? Are you moving away from being judgmental towards love? Are, are you buying into uh, the, the conflict that appears to be deepening and worsening in our culture where the only way to really express yourself is to do so in hateful and harmful ways? Or have you figured out that when Jesus said, turn the other cheek, that he's not just talking about the holy devoted, that he's talking about me and he's talking about you and everyone that we know? Where are you going? It's true that destination matters. But right now, for you and I, between now and when Jesus returns, it's all about the journey. Where are you headed? And how are you getting there? The disciples were a little confused as well. In fact, even up to the the moment before Jesus was killed, the day before, I love the conversation that Jesus has. It's in the Gospel of John. And it's interesting. Here's what Thomas says to Jesus. First of all, Jesus is saying to him, you know, I'm going to prepare a place for you. You know that verse. I'm going to, if it weren't so, I would have told you and, and you know where I'm going. And Thomas has just heard all of this. It's very poignant. You can just imagine the disciples are just about to shed a tear. It's just incredibly moving. Thomas looks at him and says, uh, no, we have no idea where you're going. 
How can we know the way? Man, I just love Thomas and his honesty. He's like, he's going to call it out. I, I don't know. Peter doesn't know either. He just didn't want to say so. We have no idea where you're going, and we don't know the way. Have you ever felt that way with God? Have you ever thought, I don't know what you're doing. I mean, I would do it different if I were in charge, so give me the wheel for a while. Thomas, we have no idea where you're going. We don't know what's happening. We don't know which end is up. It feels like it's chaos. It feels like it's headed down the wrong path. And Jesus just looks at him. Remember, it's all about the journey. It's all about the destination. So Jesus just looks at him and the rest of the disciples and says, very next words in Scripture are these. So Jesus said, I'm the way. Well, what's he saying? Thomas, Peter, James, John, Bartholomew, Thaddeus, I am the journey and the destination. If you're with me, you're on the right road. So the invitation to you is this very same. Jesus says, come and follow me. Will you journey with me? If you don't know where you're headed, well, you're probably in good company. Let's pray. Lord, we ask right now in this moment that we would trust you. We live in a world that is riddled with anxiety, and we find ourselves buying into it or giving into it often. And we wonder what's around the corner for us. Will we be facing sickness or trouble or difficulty or pain, diagnosis or financial hardship? Lord, when we hear about the sickness of one of our close friends, we, we pray and we're fervent and we hope and we desire, but we also know that that could be us tomorrow. Lord, just like Abram was called to leave a place that he was comfortable, you are forever working our stories out in the context of not just our geography, where we happen to be and where we live, but also through this idea of journeys and destinations that you are working in and through sacred places where we meet you in the middle of pain and joy, in victory and defeat, in success and failure. So Lord, we ask that you would guide us down the path that we're on. May we walk with you. May we join our efforts, our hearts, our minds with you and you alone. May we hear the answer that you gave to Thomas because it is for us on this day that you are the way. And Lord, if we're with you, then we're not wrong. We're not in the wrong place. We're not on the wrong path. Help us to want what you want, Lord, and walk with you every day. And so we are not naive and we recognize that the journey that Jesus has invited us to walk to walk on is, is the same one that he walked from Galilee all the way to the region of Judea into the city, the holy city of Jerusalem. And that this would bring about his death. You invite us to walk this same path. And so Lord, we're invited to be your disciple and die to self and set aside our agenda and pick up yours to set aside all that we think would satisfy our ego or our insecurities and follow you. And so we ask that you would lead us to the cross in this way because that's where the journey will lead us to. 
of course, resurrection on the other side, but first the cross. And so, Lord, we look to Good Friday in the next few weeks, and we ask that you would allow us to walk this journey faithfully and thoughtfully, always in your hands. Humbly surrendered to you.